0: Welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, Paula and I would like to thank all of you for your continued support. If you are new to our podcast, the best ways to support us is to tell a family member or a friend. Leave a five-star review and also consider becoming a Patreon member by going to patreon.com slash Mysteries. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Ohio Mysteries. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always, is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30 plus years at the Akron Beacon Journal writing stories just like this. Paula Schleiss.
1: Hi everybody. In 1962, an American soldier patrolling the South Korean side of the heavily armed border that separates it from North Korea. Stunned the other men in his company when he took off running. For North Korea! Private First Class Larry Allen Abshear, a 19-year-old from Garfield Heights, Ohio, made international headlines when he ignored the minefields of the demilitarized zone and fled into the enemy country. He became the first American to defect to North Korea since the Korean War had ended nearly a decade earlier. He left behind no explanation. He was the first, but not the last. Four American soldiers in the early 1960s, at the height of the Cold War, made the same decision of chilling finality, self-imposed permanent exile to the communist state. It was a choice that confounded the minds of everyone who knew them, and led to a mysterious existence in the most secret of nation on earth. Their families never knew what happened to them, not until 40 years later, when one of the men still living was finally permitted to leave. He later wrote a book about his life, a story in which he also shared some of the details of Larry Abshire's sad existence. Larry Abshire defected on May the 28th, 1962, one year after his enlistment in the U.S. Army. But this story may have its roots in a troubled childhood. Larry was born in 1943, probably in Indiana, to Ruth and George Abshire. I'm not sure what happened to his mother. We never learn what happens to her after this. But by 1950... The 7-year-old was living in Champaign, Illinois with his dad, George, now a 36-year-old truck driver, and his 19-year-old bride, Patricia. The family soon moved to Garfield Heights, a suburb of Cleveland, and Larry spent his adolescence there while his dad operated a gas station in town. We know very little about Larry's formative years, but one clue suggests it was far from idyllic. When he enlisted in the Army at the age of 18, he listed his last address as an orphanage, the Soldiers and Sailors Children's School in Illinois. It was an orphanage originally established after the American Civil War for youngsters who had lost their parents during the conflict. For at least some of his late teen years, Larry had been a ward of the state of Illinois, while his father remained in Garfield Heights, and his mother was noticeably absent from his life. At the orphanage, Larry's caretakers thought well enough of him. He was a fair student who played in the school band, they said, and he stayed out of trouble. As soon as he came of age in 1961, Larry went straight to a Chicago recruitment station and signed up with the U.S. Army. After basic training, he was deployed to South Korea. Now, this was during the Vietnam War, but early before the mandatory draft. Many new recruits were being sent to Vietnam, but there was still a need for America's military on the Korean border. That's because a decade earlier, North Korea had invaded South Korea and the United States sent its forces over to support the democratic southern country against its communist aggressors. The war ended in 1953 with a truce. Both sides took their soldiers back home and a demilitarized zone, a DMZ, marked the boundary they agreed never to cross. In 1961, Larry was sent to patrol this Asian version of the Iron Curtain. He was an infantry soldier with the 1st Cavalry Division. His job was to report any North Korean activity or any incursion by the North Korean Army into the South. In letters to his dad, Larry acted as if he was enjoying his time in the military. But in truth... He was in trouble all the time. Some said he was set off after getting into an argument with the mess sergeant for which he'd been reprimanded. Others said he'd been caught several times smoking marijuana on duty and was on the verge of getting court-martialed. Perhaps that's why Larry picked another option. On a spring day in 62, he set aside his rifle, left his security outpost, and ran a mile and a half down a dirt road through the DMZ. There, he asked for asylum, though that wasn't obvious for a while. For days, news reports could only say he was last seen running across the border with no clarity on why he had done such a thing. Even Larry's father, George, couldn't believe the answer was desertion. It just doesn't sound like Larry, he said, suggesting the accounts of his son's action must have been exaggerated. But sure enough, two weeks later, Larry's defection was announced on North Korean radio. He was quoted as saying he could no longer stand a humiliating life in the American military and that he was, quote, unable to endure the prick of conscience and repress indignation at the doings of the U.S. Army in South Korea. He was also quoted as saying the U.S. Army had been bringing weapons to the border in preparation for an invasion into North Korea, and that American soldiers were already raping and plundering at the border. Forced to accept what his son had done, George Abshear told the Cleveland press he last heard from his son around Christmas. Quote, He said he was kept very busy with normal army duties. Oh, he complained about the cold weather in Korea and the mountains, but he liked the army so well. He even told me he wanted to make the service a career, so why would he desert? Three months later, another American family would ask that same question. James Dresnock, a 21-year-old GI from Virginia, also walked across the DMZ. He carried a shotgun and fired off a warning to fellow soldiers who were shouting at him to stop. He ran into the arms of North Korean soldiers who at first wanted to kill him, but decided to take him to the capital of Pyongyang. Like Larry, James Dresnock was also apparently trying to avoid seemingly minor court-martial charges. Though he followed in Larry's footsteps, he had never heard of Abshir. Indeed, he was stunned to learn he wasn't the first defector. Dresnock later recalled that when the North Koreans were interrogating him to make sure he wasn't a spy... They brought Abshir in to meet him. Dresnok said he blinked. He thought he was dreaming. What was another American soldier doing here? All he could do was look at Abshir and say, Who the hell are you? Two more soldiers crossed the no-man's land over the next two years. Specialist Jerry Parrish of Kentucky in December of 1963 and Sergeant Charles Jenkins of North Carolina in January of 1965. Not surprisingly, North Korea found great propaganda value in the four Americans. They were featured in a series of state-run magazines with photos of the men boating, hiking, playing ping-pong at a resort. The men were quoted as saying how great it was to be living in North Korea— though it was pretty clear to anyone who spoke English that the words attributed to them were not likely theirs. One letter published and said to have come from Larry Abshear read, "'Dear old fellow friends, enjoying warm welcome from North Korean people, "'I put off the disgusting GI uniform and visited Pyongyang "'and other cities and villages.'" To tell the truth, the people in North Korea are enjoying freedom and happiness inaccessible to the working people of the United States. Please don't be a victim for the Wall Street, but fight for your withdrawal from South Korea. The men were also taken to the DMZ and instructed to shout through megaphones at their former colleagues that they should come join them in the paradise that was North Korea. Their lives, however, were no paradise. Charles Jenkins, the fourth defector, left North Korea for Japan in 2004, When a deal was struck between those two countries, it was the first time in 40 years that anyone knew what had happened to the men. Jenkins said, after their defections, they pretty quickly realized they had made a terrible mistake. Here's a quote from him, and excuse the language, but eh, he was a soldier, and I thought it important to be accurate here. We were all young, dumb soldiers from poor backgrounds. I had a pretty good military record, while the other three were pretty much total fuck-ups as soldiers. The three of them, also like me, walked across the DMZ without really thinking about the huge consequences of what they were doing and without understanding what North Korea was really like. They were trapped forever in North Korea. All of them quickly grew to hate the country and would have left in a second if they could have. What a sorry-ass little foursome we were. Now Jenkins was a 24-year-old sergeant in 1965 when he drank 10 beers and then stumbled across the DMZ into what he described as a self-imposed life sentence in a giant, demented prison. In 1966, the four men made an effort to get out. They went to the Soviet embassy, hoping to find asylum in that country, thinking it couldn't be worse. But they were rejected and returned to their North Korean overseers for a re-education process. For years, the men lived in squalor sharing a rat-infested two-bedroom brick house with no heat and no running water. It was located about ten minutes from the Capitol, and for the first ten years, a political leader was with them around the clock. When they spotted the U.S. Army tattoo on Jenkins' forearm, they hacked it out using a knife and scissors, saying anesthetic was only for soldiers wounded in battle. The men had to spend up to 10 hours a day studying the writings of the country's communist leader, Kim Il-sung. One man's failure to correctly recite the words in Korean could result in a beating or study time being increased to 16 hours a day for all four Americans. They were also subjected to a weekly session where they had to sit before a panel of government men and confess mistakes they'd made. The house they lived in was wired, so their every utterance was monitored. Stuck in such close confinement and under such pressure, the men often turned on each other. Their fist fights were in addition to the regular beatings from their communist minders. According to Jenkins, Larry Apshur was, quote, a simple, sweet, good-hearted soul who was also more than a little dumb and easy to take advantage of, especially by Dresnock and Parrish. Jenkins described Dresnock as a bully and a snitch, who regularly reported on any misdemeanor, and who beat Larry and Jenkins often on the order of their North Korean watchers. Jenkins said Dresnok liked picking on Larry in particular because he was slow-witted. In one instance, the men listened to a foreign radio broadcast of John Steinbeck's novel of Mice and Men, and after that, Dresnok kept calling Larry Lenny, After the story's mentally disabled character. When Larry did stand up for himself, it wasn't always the best timing. Once, when the North Korean overseers took from them a pig that they had been fattening up so they could finally have some meat, Larry called them a Korean word that meant son of a bitch. The officials reacted by bringing in several soldiers with AK 47 assault rifles pushing Larry up against a wall and ordering him to apologize or be shot. Wisely, he apologized. In June of 1972, now this was a decade after Larry defected and a bit less for the other three, The four Americans were offered citizenship. Offered may not be exactly the right word. Jenkins said he asked what would happen if he refused and was told by a government official, then you won't be here tomorrow. They applied for citizenship. Then the four men were separated. Larry and Parrish shared one house and Jenkins and Dresnock shared another. They were all given jobs teaching English at a military academy. They were also given women. The women, officially, were cooks assigned to their homes, though Jenkins said they fulfilled all the roles that wives traditionally fulfill. At first, the so-called cooks were all Korean women who had been divorced for infertility and found unworthy of marriage. But after Larry's cook became pregnant, the four Korean women were whisked away, and four foreign women were brought in to marry the men. The women had all been abducted from their homelands. Larry was wed to a woman named Anoka from Thailand. She had been kidnapped three months earlier while walking on a street in her neighborhood then sent to North Korea by boat before being given to Larry. Jenkins said his wife was an 18-year-old Japanese woman who had been kidnapped from her island, stuffed in a black body bag, and taken by boat to North Korea. While the men were somewhat known to the North Korean public because of their defection in the 60s, they really rose to prominence in the late 1970s When they were given acting jobs, they played roles in a 20-part North Korean series, a sort of soap opera, called Unsung Heroes. Larry played the part of one of the bad guys, a secret police captain. It was just the first of several film projects in which the men were tapped to play devious Westerners. Now Larry never had the opportunity to speak to anyone in his family, and they had no way of knowing what had become of him as the years passed. Larry's father, George, died in 1993. It was only after Jenkins was released in 2004 that it was learned Larry had died way back on July the 11, 1983 of a heart attack. He was 40. He was buried in a wooden coffin draped with a red flag and marked with a tombstone that listed the capital city of Pyongyang as his birthplace. Parrish, the third defector, died in 1996, but his family wouldn't know it for years. That same year, his hometown newspaper had done a story about how his family was wondering what had become of him. U.S. authorities said they couldn't confirm what happened to any of the men, but Parrish's family kept insisting the government do more to try and find out and bring the men home. A 19-year-old makes stupid mistakes, said one of Parrish's aunts. He might have made a wrong choice, but he was just a child. In another eight years, the family would finally learn that Parrish had died of kidney disease just weeks after that story had run. Jenkins, originally from North Carolina, and his Japanese wife Hitomi Soga, along with their two adult daughters, were finally freed by North Korea in the early 2000s. There had been enormous pressure on North Korea to return several women who had been abducted in the 1970s. So, to ease the Japanese, they allowed Hitomi to go home for a visit while her husband and children remained in North Korea. Hitomi and Japan ignored North Korea's order for her to return. Two years later, Japan made a deal with North Korea to get Jenkins and the couple's two daughters released. Jenkins and Hitomi settled into a new home not far from where Hatomi had been taken three decades earlier. Now, after arriving in Japan, Jenkins turned himself in to the U.S. Army, said he was reporting for duty, and the U.S. Army followed up with a court-martial. The elderly Jenkins was sentenced to 30 days in prison for desertion, though he was released a few days early for good behavior. He died in 2017 at the age of 77, but not before releasing a book about his experiences. Much of the research in this story about Larry Abshire, Jenkins, and the other defectors come from that book, The Reluctant Communist, published in 2008. James Dresnock, by the way, the second defector, died of a stroke in 2016 while still in North Korea. He had two sons and told reporters late in life that he had no regrets and felt perfectly at home in North Korea. Dresnak participated in a 2007 documentary about his life. Larry Abshire, however, didn't live long enough to tell his own story. The day he crossed the DMZ was the last time he was ever seen by anyone in the free world.
0: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War. But half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains we'll discuss president mckinley admiral dewey the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk theodore roosevelt's presidency check out our show ohio versus the world on the evergreen podcast network for our new episode about america's most forgotten war now back to the show